Good morning, everyone. I want to share with you first about uh, the Boston Marathon. And the, one of the reasons why it's so grueling is because of its legendary obstacles. Now, starting at about mile 13, you start to encounter multiple hills as you are running through this. And it culminates at mile 19 at what's known colloquially, colloquially as Heartbreak Hill. It's the longest and steepest of the hills that you encounter during this 26-mile run. And it's about a half-mile incline where you are struggling against gravity. Now, here's what makes matters worse. You see, world-class runners start to hit the wall around mile 18 or 19, right when you start to hit Heartbreak Hill. And so what happens is your body is depleted of the glycogen, the energy that's stored in your muscles, and instead that's replaced with lactic acid. And so your muscles are screaming for oxygen and your legs feel like they're turning into concrete. And so with only a handful of miles to go, it's easy to break down or to give up at Heartbreak Hill. And I bring this up to you this morning because your life and mine, uh, our lives are not built on level ground. As we walk forward through the days of our lives, uh, we have problems, and then we encounter hills of bigger problems, and then there's those times when we face Heartbreak Hill. And so the question is, how do you find the strength to persevere, to press on in that journey of life when you encounter those difficult things. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 12. We're in this series called Anchored, where we're discovering as turbulence in life causes us to drift from our faith, that Jesus is an anchor of hope for our soul. And so for the Hebrew Christians back then who received this letter, for us now, that this letter is a call for us to hang on to Jesus because he is better than all the other people, pursuits, and possibilities in which we tend to place our hopes. Now, last week, we walked through chapter 11 in this spiritual hall of fame, these examples of faith who were able to look past the short-term pleasures and pains of life to persevere in trusting God's presence and his promises. And so this week, in light of these great examples, how will you and I endure in our faith, in our faith when we face Heartbreak Hill. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So in verse 1, your life, your faith, is like a race, but it's not a sprint, it's more like a marathon. And so in order to finish well, we need to do what in verse 1? To run with endurance, like these examples of faith, these examples of perseverance that we saw way back in chapter 11. The problem here in verse 1 is that we carry all kinds of baggage, that our sin and our circumstances, it says. In other words, the pains of life, of this life, these hindrances that threaten to drag us down and drag us away from Jesus. And so the question is, how do we 
throw off that weight? How do we get rid of that baggage? Or how do we run through it? Verse 2, fix your eyes on Jesus, the founder who started our faith and the perfecter who moves our faith forward towards maturity and completion. Okay, why should we do that? That always sounds like the right answer, but how does that actually help us endure through troubling and painful circumstances? Well, number one, we know that Jesus knows suffering. And so the question is, how does he persevere in his trust and obedience to the Father, even in death? Look at verse 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now, what that's not saying is that pain is good, or that life is pain, or that he's not saying that the shame and the pain of the cross bring Jesus joy. But what is past it, he fixes his eyes further to the joy that lies beyond the cross. And so we discover through his suffering, through his obedience, that he brings this joyous reconciliation between God and us. That on the other side of pain, that we will experience this incredible, deep joy of renewed intimacy with him, with his father, and with us. That is the joy that he keeps his sight on. That helps to move him past the fear and anguish that he experienced as he was praying in Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22 verse 44. To move past that anguish so that he can have strength and face his moment. Verse 3. As we face faith-crushing situations of life, consider how Jesus endures. That he faced the hostility that came from sinful people. What kind of hostility did sinful people give him? They shamed him with nakedness on the cross. They gave him undeserved scorn and beating. They gave him the horror of the crucifixion. So we look to him, how he fixes his eyes, not on the pain, but on the promise ahead. And if we were to fix our eyes on him and follow him, that we will not grow weary or faint-hearted, even in the midst of great suffering. And so the big idea this morning is that we are to run with endurance by fixing our eyes past our pain to our perfecter, to the one who perfects our faith and our joy, that he's both the example that we follow, but also the empowerment for us to be able to trust and obey the Father in the midst of our suffering. You see, there are times when the challenges to your life and to your faith are going to be excruciating. And the question for you is, in that moment, where do you focus your eyes? On your pain or on your perfecter? You see, it's easy to take our eyes off of Jesus and to focus simply on the pain and let that take all of our vision up. And when we do that, it's easy for us to become convinced that, it's, that I, can, I should give up on myself or on God. Why should I bother trusting and obeying you, Lord? Why should I bother having integrity when others don't? Or working on my marriage when the other person won't? Why should I forgive my enemies when I'm being crucified? And what it boils down to is, do you really believe God? Do you know that he's good, that he's faithful, that he's sovereign, that he has a better plan and a better promise for you? Do you really believe that there will be joy on the other side of your suffering and obedience?
Don't choose easier. Choose better. Following Jesus doesn't necessarily make our lives easier, but it will always make it better. Now, we can understand why God would want us to hang on to Jesus and his promises in the midst of our suffering, but why does he let us go through it? Why does he make us endure that pain? What's the point of going through moments of suffering? Verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's stop right there. Now, when you read this passage, sometimes we read this and we take it out of context. What you're, not, what you're reading here is not saying that we all struggle with sin and when we do, God spanks us. That's how a lot of us, the plain reading of this passage, that's what it looks like. What it is saying there is that there is value in enduring in our faith and suffering now. Not someday, but there's value in enduring in, that, in it right now. And so what's happening in this part of the passage We're not being scolded. We're being encouraged. Think of it this way. What do you think it means in verse 4 when it says, in our struggle against sin that you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood? Let me give you the context. Remember that Jesus shed his blood in verse 2 and that there's this cloud of witnesses, many of whom experience things like being stoned to death or sawn in two or put to the sword in chapter 11. But basically, the context here is there's all these people who suffered and died. They suffered. But it was not because of their sin. It was because of their trust and obedience to God. And so like them, you and I will experience suffering as we follow Jesus. Unlike them, we have not yet suffered to the point of dying for our faith. So get the context here. This struggle against sin here is related to suffering. So it's not because you're suffering, you're not suffering because you're negligent in your spiritual life. You haven't been doing your quiet times enough or because you lied at work or because you were sexually lusting in some way. What it's talking about in this passage, remember the context of Hebrews and particularly chapters 11 and 12, when it's difficult to follow Jesus because of the pain, when we're tempted to give in to discouragement or doubt or despair, And to turn from Jesus, to drift from Jesus. Remember, that's the the theme of Hebrews. That's the sin of becoming like the sinners that we saw in verse 3, who resist 
and reject Jesus. And so, for example, when you and I are feeling hurt and angry, instead of running to God, we decide to take our anger out on God. Or those times when in the midst of our pain, we turn to destructive sins. We decide to indulge in drunkenness or sexual immorality in order to self-medicate the pain that we're feeling. Or we find our fulfillment in other more subtle things, like our work or our watching TV or our kids or our stuff in place of Jesus in the midst of our pain. And so the underlying struggle that this is describing is that moment when we feel like, well, God doesn't care about me. God doesn't care about my suffering. So I turn from Jesus. I run from Jesus. That's the sin. That's the sin that this passage is disciplining us about. Because it's not true that God doesn't care about us. God does care. It says in this passage that he loves us. He delights in us as if we were his son, as a son. And he doesn't just love us in the midst of our suffering. Look at verse 5. It says that he loves us through the suffering. Quoting from Proverbs chapter 3, it describes how God, as a loving father, that he disciplines us through the suffering. That's how he shows his love for us. Okay, well, that that just sounds judgmental and unloving. But let me give you the context here. That word in Hebrew, or in Greek, excuse me, Discipline in our English Bibles doesn't mean what we think it means. The word actually means in the original language, training. Like think about 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, when it talks about the word of God is useful for correction, for instruction and training. That's that word, that idea of God using in the instruction and correction to train a child's soul. It's kind of like a runner training for a race. So it's not punishment. It's for our good. It's for our growth. And so when you read this passage, what is, how we're not supposed to hear it is, well, you're just supposed to take your deserved beating because you're sinful. No. Remember that Jesus bore the punishment for our sins. And so remember in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says that now there's no longer any condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. And so we need to understand the difference here, the difference between judgment and discipline. In verse 6, it tells us that this is not the punishment of an angry father who rejects us. This is the training of a loving dad who receives us, who accepts us in verse 6. Now, here's the key to this part of the passage. Look at verse 7. It is for discipline. Read it this way. It is for our training, for our growth, for our maturity that we are to endure suffering. And I want you to catch this, that God is purposeful. He is using the suffering. He is designing the suffering for our good. That God is not some passive or powerless observer when you are in a moment of pain. That when pain and persecution intend harm to to us, God designs it for our good, that it is not pointless. And so here's the point. We're to persevere in following Jesus when it's most painful because that's when following Jesus is most fruitful. How so? Look at verses 8 through 10. Like a good dad, he loves us, he delights in his children, and he instructs us and corrects us for our good. 
This is the way you know if you're really part of God's family of faith. If your perfect and heavenly Father shapes us through the suffering to, what does it say in verse 10? Share in His holiness. In other words, through the pain that He helps us to grow more like Jesus in our character, in our trust, in our obedience, and in our faith. Suffering is to spiritual growth as a workout is to our physical growth. What I mean is that as in a physical workout, as your muscles are torn, they, they rebuild and they grow stronger. Now, does that seem pleasant or painful, according to the text? Painful, right? Well, in verse 11, it's the same with spiritual training, that through suffering, our muscles grow and bear good fruit. We experience two things, it says, an increase in the peace of God, and an increase in the righteousness of God as we grow closer to Jesus and more like Jesus. It reminds me of Dan McConchie. He, uh, back then, he's a senator today, but he was the vice president of Americans United for Life um, several years ago. And he was riding his motorcycle through an intersection of a suburban area when a car came into his lane and pushed him into oncoming traffic. The next thing he knew, he woke up two weeks later, in a level one trauma center. Six broken ribs, deflated left lung, broken collarbone, broken shoulder blade, and five broken vertebrae. But worst of all, he had received a spinal cord injury that left him a paraplegic. Now, the neurosurgeon told his wife that it would be a miracle if he would ever walk again. Eight years later, he's still in a wheelchair. That's the kind of pain that makes you want to give up on life and give up on God. But what does he have to say about his situation? He says, I've learned that the purpose of this life is not to be comforted, but to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that doesn't happen when everything is unicorn and rainbows. Instead, it happens when life is tough, when you're forced to rely on God just to make it through the day. And so during these darkest moments is when Jesus is most real and most at work, molding me to to be what he designed me to be. And so I pray differently today. Before the accident, I looked at God like Santa Claus. I would ask him to send nice things my way. But now when I pray, I pray two things above any other. Let me know how good your presence is today. Secondly, Lord, may I be able to say at the end of the day that I was faithful to you. Growth in his peace, growth in the holiness of God. (coughs) Excuse me. As a pastor, I have the honor of accompanying people often through a, a very painful season of life. And I've discovered what happens is when you go through something very traumatic or very painful, that you don't just heal from it, you're changed by it. What I mean is that you're not just repaired back to the way things were. Either you come to curse God more and turn away from him, or you you come to praise God more and you turn towards him because you're experiencing more of him in the midst of the pain. You see, when we go through tough times, We're tempted to turn against Jesus, to turn away from him. 
And I want you to remember, think about those times when you felt closest to God. When did you grow the most in Christ? And what I've discovered almost universally, that the most intimate and powerful moments of really knowing God have been etched in pain. That we don't discover what it really means to trust Jesus, to depend on Jesus, to experience Jesus till all of our resources and self-reliance get stripped away from us. Let's move on. Verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Here's the conclusion of this passage, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, because of the fruit that God bears in our suffering of peace of God and holiness of God, be encouraged in your faith. Lift your wobbly hands and knees. Move forwards. Finish the race that God has marked out for you. Question for you. Does this passage say to get up on your feet before or after you experience help and healing? Before. Second half of verse 13, while you are still crippled and lamed by your suffering, step forward to trust God so that you can experience being trained and transformed by God. Yes, but... What if I don't have the strength to take a step of faith in my suffering? Here's the good news. In the kingdom of God, running is not a solo sport. Look at verse 14. In your version of the Bible, it probably says something like, uh, strive uh, for peace with everyone. But that's not the actual grammar of the text. In the original language, let me read to you what it actually says so, so that you don't misunderstand and misinterpret it. In the original language, the way it reads is, Strive together with everyone for peace and for holiness. You get that? So there's this idea of working together to, to, to attain that fruit that we saw in verses 10 and 11 of peace, the peace of God and the holiness of God. And so when sickness or slander or suffering are overwhelming you, instead of giving into fear or despair or anger, we're called to face it together in community to keep encouraging each other towards God's peace, towards God's holiness that we already have in Christ. How do we do that? Here's the key. Look at verse 15. Help others to finish the race by making sure that we keep coming back to God's grace, God's unearned, undeserved favor and his forgiveness and his acceptance and his life that we didn't have to earn through our works that we already have in Christ if we put our trust in him. That we need to remind each other again and again because when your soul isn't filled up with the life-giving giving waters of grace, 
then bitterness springs up in its place. That's what verse 15 tells us. That when we become bitter towards God, it's like a weed that takes root and takes over our lives and it always bears that unrighteous fruit of sinfulness and selfishness. So here's the point. That we endure in our faith and in our suffering when we encourage each other to be watered by grace instead of poisoned by bitterness. And it gives a cautionary tale of what that kind of poisonous bitterness looks like. In verses 16 and 17, he's basically telling us, don't be Esau. His brother Jacob was one of the examples of faith, and Esau is the example of faithlessness. See, what happened to Esau was he looked down the road of mild adversity, and he decided it's not worth it. And so he sold this priceless blessings of God in order to have a cheap bowl of soup to satiate his fleshly hunger. He chose a life, it says later in this passage, of indulging immorality and godlessness over suffering. But he also chose indulging his flesh and sinfulness over God. And then he came to realize his mistake, but it was too little, too late. And so it's the answer to the question way back in chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And the answer to that question, like Esau's, is that you can't, that you live for your flesh, that receiving pleasure or avoiding pain, more than you treasure God's presence and his provision and his promises. At the end of your life, there's no respite for you. That's the warning. That's the lesson here. And so Esau is the epitome of not not trusting God to meet our present needs, nor treasuring God for his future promises. Don't be that guy. Don't go it alone. And so I want to ask you this morning, who are your running partners? Who do you know? Who do you trust to point you to the life-giving waters of grace? God's grace when you're in the midst of pain, when you're blinded by pain and you can't see it and you need somebody else to help pour that water of grace into your life? Who do you know that's willing to point out when you are allowing bitterness to take root and poison your soul? And it's not just a one-way street. It's meant to be a two-way street. Who do you need to encourage and challenge in the midst of their suffering today? And I want to tell you, we often assume that people are okay because they're, we're very good at wearing pretty masks. And so would you pray and see who it is that you need to en- encounter because too many of us go it alone. Let's go back to that Boston Marathon for a minute because I want to sh- share with you that there are things that are more painful in the race than simply heartbreak hill. You may remember April 15th, 2013, during the Boston Marathon, there's a woman named Rebecca Gregory. She's waiting at the finish line with her five-year-old son. She was only there to support her friend who was running. When the first of two homemade bombs detonated just three feet away from her. Rebecca's legs took the majority of the impact, protecting her son from that fatal injury. And she says, and I quote, What I saw that day was people's body parts on the ground next to me. Bones laying on the sidewalk, blood, nails, ball bearings, and and BBs. And 
I was pinned to the ground. My left leg was on fire and I was lying in a pool of my own blood. And I truly thought that I was going to die. And I wondered if I would ever see my child's smile again. Praise be to God. Her son Noah was out of the hospital after five days. But her injuries were far more extensive. As we pull up the next picture, you'll see that after 17 surgeries and months of over 60 procedures, she had her left leg amputated. Here's my question for you then. How do you get back up when your life has literally been blown to pieces? As Rebecca struggled with the daily pain, both physical and emotional, she had to make a choice. And she says, in my story and in your story, strength rises and falls with challenges that lead us either closer to Jesus or away from Jesus. Now, there's a word for you this morning. Do you let suffering draw you away from Jesus or nearer to Jesus? And so Rebecca says, people ask me, What's the secret? And anyone who follows Jesus already knows it's not a piece of information. It's trust. Trusting God has control, growing in faith even as we face obstacles, asking how Jesus wants me to look at my life. She says it filters out all the distractions and it guides the journey to become the person God wants us to be. There's no secret to it. The power of Christ alone sustains my strength. And then she continues, as for life's misfortunes, don't look to your relationship with Jesus to protect you from tragedy more than anyone else. Instead, this thing that we Christians call salvation is what gives us peaceful confidence. We stand assured of a love and existence beyond the physical limitation of our lives. Two years later, She returned to the Boston Marathon in 2015. This time, not to watch, but to run in the race. And she says, I went back to that same pavement on Boylston Street, where I thought for sure I would die. That same pavement where a year later, I was pushed around in a wheelchair. This time, I won't be laying on the ground in pieces or assisted because I can't do things on my own. This time, the only thing hitting the ground will be my running shoe. And so here's a photo of her emotionally crossing the finish line on a prosthetic leg. She completed her race. The question is, how will you complete yours? As we gather around the communion table this morning, I'm going to ask you to reflect on your life and your faith in three ways. Number one, how do you need to run with endurance? By fixing your eyes past your pain to your perfecter, Jesus, who perfects your faith and your joy. Number two, where do you need to persevere in following Jesus when it's most painful? Because that's when following Jesus will be most fruitful that it will produce an increase of a magnitude of the peace of God and the holiness of God in you as you hold on to Jesus and grow more like Jesus. Number three, who are your running partners? All of us 
need encouragement from each other to be watered by the grace of God so that we won't be poisoned by the bitterness of pain. So those three questions I want you to reflect on as you prepare some bread and wine this morning. How do you need to run towards Jesus? Where do you need to run? And who do you need to run with? And I want to urge you, don't waste a good pandemic. What I mean is, we're not just sitting around waiting for Jesus to deliver us out of the pain. How can you turn to Jesus and depend on Jesus to grow you through the pain of this season? As we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, may you run with endurance in the race set before you. May you grow in peace, in holiness, in Christlikeness, together. God, our Father, as we prepare our hearts to receive the communion, may we sit and meditate on your word. Thank you for being so good, so faithful, so present. No matter what tragedies we experience, may we know that you are a faithful God. And so we ask humbly that you would help us to consider how we need to run more by fixing our eyes on you. Where are the areas that we need to run towards you so that we can experience more fruitfulness, no matter how painful. And help us to find encouragement as we do it together. Oh God, would you rescue us from our pain by transforming us through it. In the beautiful name of Jesus, amen.